Hello and welcome to P4A's Let's Talk Rare monthly podcast. Every month, we at Partners for Access bring to you some of the most important news developments in the orphan drug and cell gene therapy world and what they mean to you. Welcome to our monthly Let's Talk Rare podcast. I'm so excited to announce I have a new co-host with me today. You met him last month, Owen Bryant. He had so much fun on our podcast last month that uh, we decided to invite him along to join us permanently. So he's a new addition to the team uh, and he'll be yet co-hosting alongside me, Georgie Rack. So uh, Owen, great to have you on board and welcome. Thank you very much, Georgie. It's great to be here on the Let's Talk Rare podcast. I'm really looking forward to being a permanent fixture, but also getting into the discussion today on patient empowerment because we've got some fantastic guests with us. And they are... Lawrence Willard from On The Pulse, Neil Bertelson, an independent consultant, and Sophie Schmitz, managing partner at Partners for Access. And the focus on, on our podcast this month is all around patient empowerment. And how do we ensure there is genuine patient involvement at all stages of drug development, approval, and access, and the possible implications of not doing so. We'll take a look from the perspective of not only the patient, but also the drug manufacturers and why it's so important. So without further ado, let's meet our fantastic panel of experts. Off you go, we'll start with Sophie. Yeah, thanks very much, Georgie. So my name is Sophie Schmitz. I am managing partner at Partners for Access. Wonderful, and over to Lawrence. Yeah, hi. Uh, thanks so much, Georgie. It's really great to be here. So I'm Lawrence Willard. I'm the founder and director of On The Pulse. We're an independent strategic consultancy supporting the development and rollout of patient activation campaigns in haemophilia and, and broader rare disease. Um, underpinning our activity is an unwavering belief that people of all ages and backgrounds should have equitable access to inclusive and culturally responsive health education to be empowered to help make evidence-informed treatment choices. So we um, do a lot of work around thought leadership and associated content on the cultures and practices of patient education and engagement and its relevance to decision-making processes. And I also live with severe haemophilia A. So happy to, to discuss that later on in the uh, later on in the pod. And then over to Neil. Yes, it's fantastic to be here today. And I'm Neil Bertelson. I started out as a scientist, but became a patient advocate very quickly. And in the field of HIV, that was the time when we had no patient involvement at all. So it was really the HIV community around the world that started knocking on the doors of decision makers saying, the system needs to change, it's not working for us. And really following on from that, you know, working across disease areas, I worked directly with HGA bodies to say, hey, how do you do patient involvement? Do you even do any patient involvement? And if not, why not? And if you do it, how do you make it better? How do you make sure that it's that real involvement that leads to better decision-making within HTA? But I think we also need to go before HTA and think about the whole drug development process and think about how patients can really strengthen that process. You know, my work with another organization called PFMD is really focused on that drug development life cycle and how patients can make that much, much better, not just for themselves, but for the companies, the regulators and the HTA decision makers. Brilliant. Thank you so much. 
So we've got a little bit of a, of a different start to our podcast this time. So we've just got a couple of questions for each of our panel. Um, so if I could start with you, Lawrence, I'm going to ask you, town or countryside? Oh, countryside. Apple or Android? Oh, Apple. <laughs> Tea or coffee? Coffee. Road or Peloton? Road. And are you a morning or evening person? 100% a morning person. So it's a per- perfect time to be doing a recording. Thank Fantastic. You. There we go. Great. Thank <laughs> you very much. That was, that was decisive. Thank you. What about you, Neil? Are you a town or countryside guy? A town guy, I think. Okay. And print or digital? Digital. Okay. Breakfast or dinner? Dinner. Never have breakfast. I, I see from your education you were in Liverpool quite a lot. So are you a red or are you a blue? <laughs> Difficult one. I've been so far away. A red, I would say. And spring or autumn? Spring. Okay, thank you very much. And pretty much we know everything about your personalities now. We do, we do, we do. <laughs> but you, but the, the P4A is done, get off easily as well. So Sophie, town or countryside? Mm-hmm. I'll go for countryside as well. New phone or new laptop? Oh, gosh. Um, new laptop. Red wine or white wine? Red. Latin or ballroom? Boring. And sand or snow? Snow, definitely. Okay, thank you. I hate sand. Finally, Georgie, what about you? Town or country? Oh, dear. I I didn't know I was involved in this. Okay. Um, Well, it's got to be town. I'm definitely a town girl. Uh, Text or phone? Phone. Pepsi or Coke is we're child of the 80s. Oh, it's got to be Coke. Coke. (laughs) That Coke all the way. Um, Participating or supporting? participating and sunrise or sunset oh that's that is a really tough one but i love my sunset so i think i'm gonna go for sunset so i'm not, mor- a- I'm not like Lawrence. i'm not a morning person <laughs> at all so i just wanted to give you a flavor of the people we've got on our panel today and by the way i'm countryside if you wanted to know oh there we go maybe we're gonna have to get owen next time and we will get your uh your answers though, on a quick fly around look forward to that thanks for indulging me with that but it just helps give <laughs> a, flavor, a little bit about who you are uh, and where, where you've come from. So let's let's start talking about patient empowerment. Absolutely. So yeah, so first of all, I just want to ask all of you actually, what does patient empowerment mean to you? Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind starting actually because okay. patient empowerment is something that many companies talk about. I don't actually think they know what they mean when they talk about it. It's a, it's become one of those those terms that are overused and misunderstood. The World Health Organization did actually come out and define patient empowerment. And since then, several other groups have come out to to give a definition of it. And there are two things I think that are really, really important within the concept of patient empowerment. One is control and people having control about what's going on in their lives, whether that's decisions about their healthcare or actions around trying to find out Um, about various different healthcare options. So one is very importantly about control. And the second one, I think that's really important as well is is the awareness, the understanding, um, the education. And sometimes that's, you know, that's quite difficult to even access any kind of of, um, education. So for me, it's really those two aspects that are quite important, control um, and, and awareness. 
Yeah, I mean, I would follow Sophie there. I mean, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I think I would just add, and it's about supporting people to build personal agency. Um, and also, again, on the kind of on the information side, it's about how to engage with information and then use that knowledge in choice. There's varying terms, but I particularly look at Judith Hibbard's work, and I'm a big proponent of this around patient activation, which I think is a lot more relevant. Like, how do we take people from being passive recipients of their care to sort of active part, active participants in that decision making through a process of consciousness raising? So it's kind of very emancipatory. I, I just I think about this on multiple levels because I think you have individual patient empowerment, and I think that's the taking charge of your own care, your, your shared decision-making, all of those things sort of fold into that. But when you take that to level up and you think about systems, decision-makers, healthcare systems and how they're structured, I, I, I'm not sure patient empowerment is the right word there. I think that's much more around having multi-stakeholder input into that decision-making process where each of the stakeholders is both listened to and acted upon where appropriate. So I think it's useful to also think about the terminology that I, I really dislike, I really hate patient voice because we can have a loud voice, but still not be heard and still no actions come from that. Patient centricity, which puts the idea that the patient's in the center and everyone's looking at the patients. You know, it's sort of like you're almost on display in the center of here, but again, patient centricity does nothing to prompt action being taken. It's really, you know, a, a, sort of a, a metaphor for how you position patients within a system. So patient empowerment, I think, is great for the personal level and personal decision making. I think we need to think more than just patient empowerment when we're thinking about those multi-stakeholder decisions that need to be made at the policy level, the access level and the regulatory level. So what are the main challenges for drug developers in the rare disease space? For me, this really boils down to three things, focusing on the rare and, and ultra rare. Yeah. Um, the first is pretty much in the name. They're rare. So finding the patient is, is extremely difficult. I'll talk about that in a moment. The second is because of the huge heterogeneity in the patient population, actually being able to understand if your therapy is effective is also quite challenging. So that, that's really number two. And the third one I, I probably would choose is making sure that you can actually get the right evidence um, within a trial setting to know you, that your therapy is successful and that that is accepted, that evidence is accepted um, in various different countries around the world. So I'd, I'd say they're really the three key challenges. And if I sort of dig into each one in a little bit more detail. So first of all, the rarity, um, there are different definitions of what comprises a, a rare disease. Um, the US was actually the first to come out with this back in 1983, I mean, gosh, nearly 40 years ago now. Um, and looking at um, any, anything less than 200,000 patients within the, within the country. Europe has a different definition. Um, five in 10,000 people, Japan has a different one. I, I just There, there are um, different variations around the world. But ultimately, what we're talking about um, is that there are very few patients um, with a particular condition. Now, one of the main challenges with this, being that there aren't that many patients, is the time to diagnosis. 
And it takes, on average, it takes around five years to diagnose a rare disease, but it can take up to 10. It can take longer than a decade to actually get that. And that, that obviously is, is um, you know, can, that can be extremely frustrating um, for the individual and their families to understand what on earth is going on. And in fact, the European Commission put out a report in February this year, and they claim that 50%, so half of those people suffering with a rare disease have actually not been diagnosed. So if you think wow. about that, not only are they rare, um, but actually only half of them are, have actually been correctly diagnosed. You can imagine as a manufacturer, being able to find that patient is extremely difficult. So, so finding the patient is, is, is very challenging. The second point in, in sort of understanding if your therapy is effective is also quite, quite tricky. Um, if we think about rare diseases, around 80% of them are genetic in nature. Now, obviously, some of them are monogenetic, some of them are polygenetic. But even if we look at those monogenetic diseases and some that you know, would be familiar with, like sickle cell disease or cystic fibrosis, um, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, even then, when we're looking at that single um, gene, there are so many different variations there and so many different phenotypes, which means that we end up with an extremely heterogeneous patient population, which could mean that as a manufacturer, your therapy might work very well on one patient, but actually not on another patient. And being able to understand and already predict who is best likely to respond to your therapy, again, is, is quite challenging. You know, what you found the patient, and then you find out there are potentially a thousand different variants of that particular um, disease. So that, that can be quite, quite difficult. And then the third one, which I think actually maybe even be the biggest challenge of them all, is being able to get the right evidence. So if we think about the, um, the traditional clinical trial setting, it would be at various different sites, normally in the biggest markets. That's extremely frustrating for many people that live around the world in countries that don't have trial sites. Um, so that's number one. So we're only focusing on a certain population around the world. We're also bearing in mind those trial sites, only focusing on those patients that actually have access to those trial sites. So that's another thing. You're also limiting the patients that can actually get there. And when you think about that, it's probably not surprising that 30% of rare disease trials actually fail because of issues with enrollment and retainment of, of the patients. And just another fact, I think, to add some, some additional color to it is that half of, of what well, it's, it's claimed, it could be up to 75%, nobody really knows, but half of, of rare disease, those people suffering with rare diseases are children, they're pediatrics. And again, that gives another real um, difficult challenge for manufacturers to be able to understand how well this therapy is working. To be able to have a patient reported outcome for a child is very difficult for them to be able to accurately say, yes, I'm feeling better, I'm feeling worse. Um, also very difficult for them to be able to, uh, their parents to give the time to be able to take them back and forth to the trial site. So when you put all of this into consideration, actually getting the trial set up and running, getting that right evidence that is going to work for different centers around the world can be really hard. And um, I was really intrigued to, to read this report that came out last year that was looking at the benefits of home trials, home clinical trials, and dropout rates on average um, around 67% for typical trial sites. 
um, that reduces to 3% dropout um, when you actually look at the home trial center. Wow. So that that really is, I think that and lots of other things we're gonna come on to talk about today could be a huge shift in the way that um, trials are actually conducted in the future and, and to actually expand access for, for, for more patients in need. Yeah. I, I would really love to pick up on a few points that Sophie's just raised there. And I think one, thinking about finding individuals, I think that links with kind of correct and timely diagnosis. Again, like Sophie um, referred to, and, and that's been reflected as a the, uh, the priority number one in the UK's rare disease framework that was published last year and that we now have an action plan for. I think um, research demands regional and international collaboration and, and the pooling of data to obtain outcomes and a better understanding of the disease, which is crucial to lead to uh, the development of drug mo molecules. And I think that underpins the importance of registries. And I know that organizations close to me, um, one in particular called Beacon for Rare Diseases, um, they do an amazing work around capacity building with rare and ultra rare um, uh, communities. Some of these, that are, you know, you've got caregivers working from their kind of kitchen tables, um, you know, um, supporting them in terms of actually building a registry with their, within their community. Um, and then in terms of the evidence point, I think that again refers to the sort of patient or per person-centered outcome measures. And you know, without information on natural history and, and sort of rigorous qualitative research, it's super hard to ascertain how to design a clinical trial that can sorry, that can accommodate um, real-world decision priorities. So I think there's two kind of stats I'd like to share there. I think one there was a scoping review by um, Kirsting and colleagues in 2020, who reviewed the international literature of the last 20 years to understand what outcomes are particularly relevant to patients and who determines their relevance and actually found only one third of the studies involved patients in the justification of the outcome selection. So I think, again, there's challenges around the conceptual clarity of those outcomes but also a recent analysis showed that 38% of negative reimbursement recommendations for rare disease drugs in Canada um, between 2004 and 2015 resulted from a lack of demonstrated clinical effectiveness. So again, like Sophie was raising altogether, that kind of comes to that whole sort of essence of sort of patients as partners really. And, you know, the importance of eliciting and building a comprehensive understanding of the disease impact on patients' daily lives. And again, how relevant qualitative research is. And, you know, and I'll be happy to sort of touch on some examples of, of where and how that's kind of going on. And right. If I can just move this on, because I, I want to pick up some points from both of you, actually. You know, when I look at it, now I work with regulators, I work with HCA bodies, I work with patient groups. And one of the things that I see that hasn't been mentioned is the widening gap between the expectation of regulators and HTA bodies in terms of the evidence needed. So the regulators are very much incentivized for novel trial designers. They want to speed up the reimbursement process and they're prepared to experiment in trial designs to make that happen. The HTA bodies are nowhere near ready to accept that kind of evidence. That creates a big gap when you come to the reimbursement process. On top of that, you have the fact, especially if it's a rare disease that has had no innovation at all or no innovation recently, there's a lack of knowledge about how 
that disease is currently dealt with within the current healthcare system. And that creates a really big challenge for HGA bodies outside of the clinical data is understanding what's happening today without this new treatment that we can use as a baseline to assess what we get better or different with the new treatment. So you have these many gaps here that we need to start joining the dots on. Um, but Sophie, I was really agreeing with you in terms of this, we need to improve um, uh, the retention enrollment within clinical studies. And, and there was a study done just a few years ago by the Economist Intelligence Unit, and they looked at rare diseases, neurology and oncology clinical trials. And they looked at trials where there'd been no patient input to help design those trials. And they looked at, at, at products or assets that had patient input in their trial design. And they found there was almost a 20 percentage point improvement in the chance of launch success between the two. So 68% chance of launching a product successfully if you don't involve patients, 87% if you do involve patients. Wow. And it's not just the chance of launch success. Um, another study looked at, looked at the cost benefits of this, of having patients involved in the process. And they found that if you, if you actually manage to um, get rid of one protocol amendment and you improve your retention in a clinical trial, they reckoned that shaved about two and a half years from your development program equating to about $35 million in terms of the value's asset by the time it launches, if you involve the patients, if you don't involve the patients. You know, so we see a financial advantage for companies that are doing this, but we also see that we need to get much, much better at bridging the gap between what regulators want to see and what HTA and reimbursement bodies want to see. And for rare diseases, I only see that gap getting wider at the moment. So I think this is an issue that's on fire at the moment. Yeah, it, it, it's such an interesting topic. But I'm, I'm just gonna go back to one of Sophie's stats actually about uh, patient retention and 67% uh, uh, dropout rates for, for clinical trials where you've got to go to, to the assessment center compared to 3% dropout rate when they're having the clinical trials in the home setting. So really, that is massive. Um, so what are the patient barriers? What, why are they dropping out of clinical trials if they have to travel? What are the burdens for patients? And why is it much easier for them to have these trials in a, in a home setting rather than, rather than traveling? Well, I mean, there's, there's, there's quite a few reasons, really. And you, you outlined some of them. I mean, the burden of physically traveling. Um, there's one thing thinking, well, I'll just get in the car and drive two hours. But when you are ill when you are especially you might have some some significant issues with with fatigue and anemia and it's actually having the the medication sometimes can make you feel worse than than beforehand and so all of these kind of factors when you add in then having to travel to the center back and forth um is yeah is is, is can be too much for for many people and again you know if, if they're not having to just go themselves they're having to do it for somebody else and physically take somebody else again that that also is a, um impacts for for parents who are having to take time off work and they're not getting the the financial um remuneration for doing so it's it becomes a real financial burden uh, as well as a toll on on physically having to go back and forth but i think the other thing that sort of talks a little bit to what Neil was saying about the design itself of a clinical study and what you're expecting patients to 
actually complete and fill out. I mean, sometimes you, you look at these questionnaires and think, oh my goodness, I, I just wouldn't even be doing that myself on a daily basis. Um, never mind actually asking somebody else to do it. It's just a lot of um, questionnaires are actually put together in, in clinical trials without any pragmatic understanding of what it really takes to complete those. And, and, and therefore, patient perspective actually looking at it and saying this is what it would mean to me this is what it would mean for me to actually do this for my daughter on an every single day basis where sometimes you know it takes me 10 minutes to get her ready sometimes it takes me two hours because I've got all of these other problems and challenges that that real lens perspective is never actually applied so it's no surprise to me that involving patients in the design of a not not just a trial but actually that the instruments that are used is it makes us a, a huge difference from a financial perspective, but also a timeline perspective as well. And I can certainly add, add to that, you know, from my, I, I work with a lot of patient groups in rare diseases and outside of rare diseases. And the number one complaint I get from them is not just that the patient report outcome measures are time consuming and difficult, but they're not relevant. That the questions being asked actually do not reflect how people experience their disease. So they've been, it feels to the patients that they've been created by academics to, um, to answer some easy, easy to answer academic questions, but they don't really address the issues that patients are experiencing. And you see that filtering through to the HTA level as well. So I think one of the great case studies I can point you to is, is in the UK and England, the, the, the rare disease assessment for a drug for lipodystrophy. Um, and there the company and the doctors were all talking about lab values to measure lipodystrophy and the effect of the treatment. The patients and the patient groups were saying, actually in this disease, the number one thing is hyperphagia, this intense hunger that people with lipodystrophy feel. It hadn't been measured in the clinical trials. It wasn't even mentioned in the economic model. So completely not there in terms of the evidence. And it left the committee and the patient groups with a real conundrum. This is, well, there's no data that supports this, but this is our number one issue. Maybe this medicine will help. And in the end, the committee decided, even though there is no data, we think it's worth reimbursing this, this rare disease treatment. And that was only based on the patient input, no data to support it from the industry submission. And that's just one example of how constantly the industry and the researchers, the clinical researchers are not asking the basic questions at the very beginning of the process to understand what's relevant to patients. And I think that lack of relevance is part of the reason that people drop out of clinical trials, um, but also the impact on parents as well. That comes up a lot. If there's a child with a rare disease, the parents have to take time off work in order to take them to the clinic visit. So that needs to be overcome as well. We need better support services. And specific to capturing quality of life, just as a really brief case study, um, I've been involved in or project leading uh, the development of a gene therapy service at one particular London centre. So as a part of that, um, as a part of that activity, uh, we hosted sort of a, a focus group with some of the clinical trial guys. And I was absolutely amazed to find out that they were still having to complete paper form quality of life measures. I couldn't believe it. And they actually expressed all of them um, agreed that they, because they're so laborious, they don't even bother doing them properly. 
they've actually ended up after six months and particularly like post-gene therapy and how intense that follow-up can be they've ended up just ticking so it just becomes totally irrelevant and void I just don't I, I could not I can't understand even as a sponsor why they would not you know, again, to Sophie and um, Neil's points, want to inform individuals from the community at the very beginning to think about actually what are those measures? How can we make them relevant, but also easy to use, whereby they can actually inform those outcomes properly? Do you know, I had a client who will remain nameless and um, they they asked us to come in and and support because they, they didn't have any patient reported outcomes. Well, they they had a, um, only 12% of the questionnaires returned. And on my first question, well, what, what, why do you think the, the response rate was so low? I don't know. I mean, we had them in English. So, and this was a, a um, global trial. So I said, well, yeah, but how many, how many languages did you translate them into? None. I mean, everybody can speak English, can't they? <laughs> I just thought, oh, my goodness. Wow, Sophie. I mean, listening to you all so far, it really, really is becoming more and more clear to me, I hope it is to to the audience as well, as to just why it really is important to include that patient voice early on in, in your launch strategies, you know, even before you're starting to design your clinical trials. Get the patients on board, listen to the patients. It's just so important. We're going to leave it there. So this, this is the end of part one. Do make sure you tune in for part two at the end of this month where we will be diving deeper into this topic with the same panellists to why should manufacturers, payers, regulators, HDA bodies involved and listen to the patient. What do patients bring to the table? What are the implications, if any, for drug manufacturers who do not include the patient voice? Does it impact approval timelines? Does it impact clinical trials? Is this the deal breaker for HDA bodies or payers? versus companies that have a great patient engagement team and really include that patient voice? And how can we bring all stakeholders together to work on completely new approaches to medicine, approval and patient access? It's an episode not to miss. So thank you so much for staying tuned for part one. Please, please do make sure you tune in for part two. And as always, if you do have any comments, queries, if you disagree with us, Tell us. We'd really love to hear from you, our audience. So thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next month. And that's it for this month. For more Parts for Access Insight and analysis, please go to our website, www.partnersforaccess.com. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. And don't forget to leave a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening. 